This week in KMA Land, fire damages Clorinda American Legion Building. Brush fire scorches Montgomery County Conservation Land. Red Oak Schools await lawmakers' budget actions. Seacrest outlines new improved AA bill. Pros and cons of the controversial school gun bill. And renewed calls for carbon pipeline regulations in Montgomery County. I'm Mike Peterson. State and local fire officials investigated a major structure fire in Clorinda last weekend. Fire crews from Clorinda and Shenandoah battled the fire at the American Legion Post 98 at 107 West Washington Street. Clorinda Fire Chief Roger Williams tells KMA News his department was dispatched to the downtown location shortly after 12.40 a.m. Sunday for reports of flames coming through the Legion's roof. On arrival, we had some flames coming from the southeast corner of the roof and then smoke was starting to fill the building. So we uh, got guys up on the roof, got a ladder truck out, got up on the roof and worked at the, in the roof area trying to get to the seeds of fire. We sent guys inside trying to find the fire from the inside. Williams says much of the damage in the structure was contained between the roof and ceiling. He had firefighters originally encountered difficulty identifying the fire spread. We had some problems with several different ceilings we had to cut through, you know, get through the get to the fire so it took a took a little bit to finally get to the seat of the fire and then uh, when he finally did it was hard to get to and couldn't tell the exact spread it was going he had shenandoah's fire department provided aerial truck support he had used the shenandoah fireman to help uh, go upstairs to an apartment and they helped uh, look for extensions in the upstairs apartment and uh put their ladder truck up and aerial to get a better view of the roof and then so I said about 45 minutes we had it uh, under control and then uh, once we got under control I think it released uh, Shannon Doyle after about an hour. Once the fire was brought under control, Williams' says crews remained on scene until around 3.30 a.m. While the exact cause is still under investigation, Williams' says the ceiling's electrical wiring was under examination. Clarenda Police, the Page County Sheriff's Office, and Clarenda EMS also assisted the fire department at the scene. Fire of a different sort raised concerns about unseasonably dry conditions in KMA land this week. Montgomery County firefighters were sent to the scene of a controlled burn veering out of control when Wednesday afternoon. Montgomery County Emergency Management Coordinator Brian Hammond tells KMA News the incident involved a prescribed burn at the Anderson Conservation Area northeast of Red Oak at around noon. During that time, weather conditions changed. The wind changed direction several times. Their fire basically went out of control at that point and made a rapid run to the west. And at that time, the fire departments were all paged. Originally planned to cover one to two acres, Hammond says fire consumed 115 acres before firefighters brought it under control. While only one or two brush fires have occurred in the county in recent weeks, Hammond says conditions are ripe for more. The interesting thing about yesterday was we really didn't have very strong winds like we've had previous days and even forecasted for today and tomorrow. The issue is everything is extremely dry. The grass on top is all dead, hasn't grown back, it's not green. The warm conditions, low humidity, I mean, it is a concern for us. Moving into the future, especially the next few weeks, you know, until we get some spring rain to green everything up, it, it is a concern. With the current conditions persisting, Hammond urges producers planning controlled burns to take precautions. The biggest thing is, you know, be smart about it. Make sure you've got 
water sources nearby. You're checking the weather, you know, the wind conditions, the wind directions. Obviously, notify your local communication center so they're aware of the burn. That way, there's not an unwarranted emergency response if someone were to call in a controlled fire. The other thing is, if a fire does grow out of control, to make sure to call 911 immediately. That way you can get those resources on the road because the conditions that we have now, these fires are growing faster and hotter than we've seen in numerous years. Though no burning bans are in effect, Hammond says it's possible if more grass fires occur. School officials in KMA land are in a wait-and-see mode regarding developments of the Statehouse. Superintendent Ron Lorenz updated the Red Oak School Board Wednesday night on preparations for the fiscal year 2025 certified budget. Currently, Lorenz says the district proposes a $15.55 per $1,000 valuation property tax levy, similar to the current fiscal year. However, the superintendent says the numbers are still somewhat preliminary due to a lack of action from the Iowa legislature thus far on state supplemental aid. The numbers that you're looking at are assuming a 2.5% increase in the state per pupil amount, or what we call state supplemental aid. We take that number currently from $7,635 per student to $7,826 per student. And that is based on the governor's recommendation. There's currently a bill moving through the House that would have that amount be 3%. We have no way of knowing what that will be. That delay in funding also comes as new publication requirements passed in last year's legislative session take effect, including the school sending a proposed tax levy to the county auditor's office by early next month. Lorenz says they'll have to hold an additional hearing solely on that property tax levy after a mailing goes out in mid-March. One is at the end of we have to have, I think, March 21st. We have to have this thing submitted. We have to have another hearing and we have to have the budget approved and certified by the end of April. So I think there are a lot of districts that are getting a little bit anxious not knowing what state supplemental aid is going to be, but I do feel like we are ready to plug the numbers in based on what they give. Also during Wednesday's meeting, the board approved two potential calendars for the 2024-25 school year. Lorenz says an alternate calendar serves as a contingency should the Iowa legislature approve a bill changing the potential start date for school districts. The first calendar, the one on top that begins on August 23rd, meets the current statutory requirements The other is a proposal, it's actually a better alternative, uh, but it would be, it would only be applicable if the legislature were to amend (coughs) August 23rd start date. There is a bill uh, that's working its way through the legislature that would do just that. So we propose both calendars one is a contingency in the event that that legislation is passed. Lawmakers originally required the August 23rd start date to ensure the school year is started after the state fair. One proposal clearing Friday's funnel deadline says the school year could start the Monday before August 23rd if it lands on a weekday. Now, if the bill is rejected, Lorenz says the schedule based on current requirements would still provide over 1,100 hours of instruction above the required 1,080 hours. He adds an alternate proposal would begin on August 20th and end on May 22nd, along for one additional day on Christmas break and one day off following Easter. 
New developments this week regarding new versions of the contentious Area Education Agency system bill. Approved by the Iowa House Education Committee prior to last Friday's funnel deadline, House File 2612 differs from Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal in that it sends state and federal special education funding directly to schools rather than the AAs. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, State Representative Brent Seacrest says those funds must be spent on special ed services from local AEAs. The special education services, which is uh, the, the large majority of what the AEAs do, uh, that money will go to the school districts, but they will spend it with the AEAs, not with outside sources, uh, because the AEAs clearly know what they're doing there. So uh, that's the major change to make sure we protect uh, the services that uh, parents have come to expect for their special ed students. Under the governor's proposal, federal and state special ed funding would go directly to the school districts who would have the option of contracting with other agencies or AAs other than the local agency. Secret says the new improved measure was developed following a backlash over the governor's proposal. A lot of input has been taken now from parents and educators and the AAs, and so we've made quite a bit of progress on it. Still needs a few, few more changes, I think, but it's going to uh, continue to move through the process. Well, we made sure to do in our bill is to protect uh, all the special education services that the parents across the state are entitled to and also expect from the AEAs. And so that's the major change. The House version also establishes a study of AA operations involving legislators, educators, and parents. Though the Senate version is similar to Reynolds's proposal, the Council Bluffs Republican expresses confidence a compromise can be reached. Legislation allowing certain staff members to carry firearms in school buildings is still under consideration to the State House. Recently, the Iowa House Public Safety Committee approved a measure requiring school districts with an enrollment over 8,000 students to employ at least one school resource officer or private security officer. The bill also creates a grant program to match funds to help school districts fund these positions. It also creates a new permit allowing a school employee to carry weapons. The permit requires the school employee to complete a prescribed firearm safety training course before being issued a permit. State Representative Tom Moore is among the bill's supporters. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program this week, Moore says allowing school staff to carry guns would decrease the response time to incidents such as January's deadly shooting at Perry High School. One thing we've learned is is that the sooner we can get a response to an incident, the better, the less injuries, the less fatalities, the less will take place. We saw it Perry and they had an excellent response. They had a five to seven minute response. The Griswold Republican also cites the Spirit Lake School District where allowing staffers to carry weapons has been successful. Moore stresses the bill doesn't mandate school staff to arm themselves. The training though for these school staff to carry will be as extensive or even more extensive than, and Spirit Lake has, their training program is more extensive than our law enforcement training on carry. Once again, it's not a mandate, but it's another tool for school districts to have. Shenandoah Superintendent Dr. Carrie Nelson is among school officials expressing concerns about the proposal. While saying increased school safety is a priority, Nelson questions whether guns should be introduced into the school environment. I have a lot of questions about 
you know, arming staff and our staff able to respond appropriately in situations of what the training would look like, what would be necessary. Pieces of the bill talk about security staff and SROs, and I would be much more in favor of increasing staff along those lines and actually arming a teacher in a classroom with a group of students. A lot of things can go wrong. Shenandoah is one of several KMA land districts with a school resource officer in place. A similar measure is currently under consideration in the Nebraska unicameral. KMA land election officials are sounding the alarm regarding more proposed changes in the state's voting laws. Legislation clearing last Friday's funnel deadline proposes further changes to election law, particularly absentee balloting. Adams County Auditor Rebecca Bissell is president of the Iowa State Association of County Auditors. Bissell was among those voicing opposition to portions of the legislation during a recent Iowa House subcommittee meeting. Among other things, the bills would move up the deadline for returning absentee ballots to the day before the respective election. For the past two years, that deadline has been 5 p.m. the day of the election. All of these changes that they are putting in place is just greatly confusing the voting process for our voters. So they don't know when deadlines are. You know, one year it's, it's one thing, the next year it's something different. And I think constantly moving these and not seeing how the effects of them are on our voters and how they are on the election process. I just think that that's really unfair to our voters. The proposal would allow county election officials to mail out ballots 22 days before the election rather than 20 under current law. However, in-person early voting would still begin 20 days in advance. Onto the proposed law, Bissell adds the affidavit envelope would require the last four digits of a voter's identification number when they return their ballot, which the association believes to be an individual's driver's license number. Most people don't know what that last four digits of their driver's license number is, um, even know that that is what their vacation number is. And then um, if they don't put the right number, let's say they put the last four digits of their social, then we don't have any way of curing that or correcting that. And then we would have to send out a new mailed ballot to them. And there's just not enough time in the short window for mailing absentee ballots to get that out to the voters and for them to get it voted and sent back, let alone to do it twice. The legislation will also ban ranked choice voting, which is not used in Iowa. More in just a moment. The transports have been unloading daily at Tri-State Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, and the selection couldn't be better. With over 80 new available, huge rebates and leftover 23s, plus low APR, make it a great time to shed off winter and warm up to a new Tri-State Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram. Tri-State has financing for everyone. If you're divorced, have medical bills, or bad credit, no problem. Let us work for you to get you a great no-hassle deal. We have many banks eager to lend you money. I'm Todd Hill at Tri-State Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram in Maryville, and I want to earn your business. Discover the secret to keeping engines running strong in off-road environments. John Deere Plus 52 Engine Oil, specially crafted for extreme conditions. Plus 52 ensures optimal engine efficiency and unmatched protection. Whether it's tractors, utility vehicles, or trucks, our oil gets the job done. Take advantage of discounts all month long at AgriVision Equipment. 10% off select packaged oil and 15% off filters. Contact AgriVision Equipment today or visit agrivisionequipment.com. Hurry, the offer ends on 229-24. It is our sincere hope at Western Iowa Mutual Insurance that our agents offer more than just a policy and a premium. We select agents with knowledge, experience, and a willingness to serve and a natural instinct to care. They know security is important in an insurance plan and in an agent also. You'll find all that and more in our independent agents like Hummel Insurance in Oakland, Camel Insurance in Council Bluffs, or Davis-Taylor Insurance in Red Oak. 
On the next Iowa Business Report, the annual Spring Iowa Employment Conference is coming up soon. We'll hear about this year's topics. And a longtime Wall Street analyst will tell us about ESG investing and why he thinks it's bad for the global economy. That's this week on the Iowa Business Report. Listen Sunday mornings at 6.35 and 9 o'clock on KMA. Renewed calls for local regulations on carbon pipeline projects were heard during Tuesday's Montgomery County Board of Supervisors meeting. West Township resident Jan Norris updated the supervisors on the latest developments surrounding Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express CO2 pipeline. Norris says the Iowa Utilities Board is yet to rule on Summit's application for the proposed pipeline, stretching approximately 700 miles through western Iowa, including counties in KMA land. She says speculation is that the ruling could come this spring, though no timeline has been presented. Summit's permit application could be denied, could be issued as submitted with eminent domain, or could be issued with conditions. Whatever the outcome, it is likely to be tied up in court. It is unfortunate that the Montgomery County issued Summit road permits without reviewing their policies and fee structures. Some counties are using it as an opportunity to generate much-needed revenue. Norris also expressed concerns over a recent announcement that Summit is incorporating Poet's 12 facilities in Iowa and five in South Dakota into the proposed carbon capture project. The agreement involves facilitating the capture, transportation, and permanent storage of 4.7 million metric tons of CO2 annually from Poet's 17 bioprocessing plants. The IUB ordered Summit would need to file a new petition for these plants. So we should anticipate them starting the process over for the new route, which will include accurate mapping and a public information meeting like that was held at the Gold Fair building a couple years ago. Before landowners can be approached to sign easements, landowners need to understand their survey rights before the post office asks them to sign for a certified notice. Norris also presented an anticipated map of the Poet Extension, which would stretch the entire width of Montgomery County. If it goes in a straight line, we could add an additional 24 miles of pipeline to our original 18 miles. That is a 133% increase. Right now, we have 80 parcels affected. We could add well over another 100 parcels and who knows how many more people. At best, this addition would run across the southern sections of Montgomery County and at worst, potentially impacting the cities of Villisca, Stanton, Red Oak, or Viking Lake. With the Poet Extension, Norris called for the supervisors to take action on its proposed pipeline ordinance. I urge you to be proactive and please act now to preserve Montgomery County's future development and safeguard it from the impacts of multiple hazardous liquid pipelines. Review the current ordinance draft and update it with what we know now after a year of developments. We need to do this immediately. The supervisors made no comments regarding Norris's presentation. Board members held a public hearing on the proposed ordinance a year ago this month. After tabling the ordinance, the supervisors approved a resolution in July not to take action after Summit sued Shelby County for approving its own ordinance. A federal court judge in December barred Shelby and Story counties from enforcing their pipeline ordinances. 
Red Oak officials took another step toward increased workforce housing opportunities this week. By unanimous vote Monday evening, the Red Oak City Council supported a thriving communities application through the Iowa Economic Development Authority. In its second year, the designation is designed to elevate the best practices from communities going above and beyond to leverage innovative methods to attract housing opportunities to their workforce. Red Oak Mayor Shauna Silvius told KMA News the designation also provides incentive points for the various tax credit programs available through the state. It makes us more attractive to developers that are looking for communities or willing to uh, participate and be a partner in some of the tax credit programs that the state offers. So currently Red Oak already has a workforce housing tax credit with the townhome project. We have a historic tax credit and low-income housing tax credit with the uh, 1917 lofts or the former middle school. And then we've been looking at uh, several projects for redevelopment tax credits. In today's economic climate, Sylvia says tax credits and local contributions can be instrumental in establishing housing projects. She cites one of the latest developments on the north side of town, the Studio One Townhomes Project, bringing 33 market rentable homes to the community. Sylvia says the project received a $1 million workforce housing tax credit. That and our contribution uh, with putting in the infrastructure are what we're made that project possible um, in order to for them to be able to uh, hit a price point that they can build them, make them affordable for our residents to, to rent. These will be rental units. In addition to allowing more residents to live in the community, Sylvia says the additional housing also gives the city a financial boost. It helps the city get additional property tax revenue back on or on the rolls. It increases the number of water, wastewater, storm sewer users. Those are income generating for the city. And then that helps us have a, a larger stream of, of funding that can then help us do some of the replacement repair that we have in our delivery systems of our water, wastewater, and storm sewer in the future. Though the application isn't due until May 15th, Sylvia says they hope to stay ahead of the game and plan to have the council more involved with any actionable items strengthening their application. Work at another housing project has resumed in Red Oak. Back in 2019, Red Oak school officials sold the former middle school building to Red Oak Partners, LLC. Plans called for renovating the building into an income-based apartment complex in early 2020. COVID-19, along with spiking in unpredictable supply and labor costs, stalled the project, and funding shortfalls ultimately caused it to shut down in the summer of 2020. Efforts from Builders Development Corporation to secure additional funding for the project later that year were successful. Kelly Edmonds is president of Merit Construction, the project's current managers. After sitting vacant for more than a year, Edmonds says the crews returning to the former school in August 2023 addressed some loose ends. There's been quite a lot of vandalism, uh, theft of building materials that have been stored inside the building. Uh, so I had to go through a fairly extensive insurance process to, um, to recover uh, costs to repair that damage or replace the items that have been stolen. And so we've just recently uh, agreed on a, on a uh, claim amount uh, with the carrier and uh, are moving forward with those repairs. Plans and, and the original scope and kind of in parallel. 
uh, with those repairs. Plans call for renovating the venerable structure in 25 affordable workforce housing units. Working from the top down inside the building, Edmund says much of the rough-ins have been installed. All the electrical uh, wiring within walls and ceilings, HVAC, ductwork, all the water lines, the plumbing uh, has all been roughed in. And so really the effort now is to drywall and start with finishes. So on third floor, the top floor, the units up there are... um, mostly painted. We've installed cabinets and countertops for installing doors at this time. Uh, Wood floors are being refinished. Uh, So it's looking pretty close to completion up there. He adds the drywall finishers and painters will work down the floors as completed, expecting the majority of the units to be complete within the next month or so. Edmund says the annex, which holds the gym, is the last part to receive drywall and fresh paint. Though the worst impacts of COVID-19 have waned, Edmund says some items, such as electrical equipment, are still taking longer to arrive than usual. For this project, the last thing we'll be waiting on is uh, primary electrical distribution equipment. Um, you know, the building will be done for the most part and be basically sitting there until that equipment comes. Windows, um, glazing products are also something that's, that's um, lagging in the, as an industry right now. Uh, we would like to have already replaced the windows in the building. Uh, but we're still waiting on those guys to show up. But he adds prices and delivery times have been more consistent in the last year. Nebraska City officials are looking at complementing the area around the city's outdoor pool. By unanimous vote Monday evening, the Nebraska City City Council approved Nebraska City Tourism and Commerce's request for a grant application for Tuve's renovation project across from the Steinhardt Aquatic Center. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Tuesday morning, Nebraska City Mayor Brian Beckett says supporters seek a $260,000 grant from the Steinhardt Family Foundation for construction of a new shelter across from the pool. The shelter needed some repair and then they saw, well, the foundations and footings aren't all that hot. So when we thought about redoing that, we thought, well, this is a great time to make the whole thing a little more ADA friendly so that it would be more accessible for folks that are having troubles either walking or, or using a wheel device like a walk or a uh, wheelchair. So we decided to tear out the shelter. We're going to tear out the shelter and the concrete, re-pour foundation, and also put in more sidewalk and more accessible sidewalk. Beckett says the new shelter, which covers Phase 1, is estimated at $70,000. Phase 2 involves installing new playground equipment estimated at $198,000. We'll repurpose that equipment that is currently there and move it to other parks we have in the city, but then upgrade that with more ADA type equipment with swings and the jungle gym and things like that. Plans call for an east extension to the sidewalk near the shelter. The foundation's grand announcements are expected within the next two months. Ogres, Donkeys, and Farquads, Oh My, are inhabiting Shenandoah High School next weekend. Excitement is building at SHS as students prepare for the spring production. Shrek the Musical at the Gladys Worsick Jones Auditorium. Husband and wife directors Elliot and Ashley Smith lead a cast of veteran performers and newcomers in this live version of the classic movie. Though it's not the first time for Shrek at the high school, Ashley says the production fit her students' talent. We went back and forth on many, many, many shows. We listened to soundtracks, we looked through scripts, and we were super set on Shrek. But we were hesitant because we did the show eight years ago, and we thought that was too soon. And so we decided we weren't going to do it, and then the more we slept on it, the more we were like... We have the perfect kids, the perfect cast. Production dates for Shenandoah High's Shrek the Musical are March 1st and 2nd at 7 p.m. and March 3rd at 2 p.m. 
Now, for ticket reservations, log on to shenmusical.ludus.com. That's shenmusical.ludus.com. There's a video presentation online at kmaland.com. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to kmaland.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This Week in KMA Land is a presentation of KMA News.